Welcome to the Raise Private Money Legally Podcast with your host, Corporate Securities Attorney Kim Lisa Taylor. Kim is a nationally recognized attorney, speaker, and the author of two number one Amazon best-selling books, the latest of which is How to Raise Capital for Real Estate Legally. Kim and her firm, Syndication Attorneys, PLLC, have been responsible for over $2.75 billion in securities offerings. The purpose of this podcast is to introduce you to topics and services you need as your real estate syndication business grows. Whether you're a new syndicator or a seasoned fund manager, this podcast is for you. Information discussed during this free podcast is of a general, educational nature and should not be construed as legal or tax advice. Welcome to Syndication Attorney's free monthly podcast, where we talk about topics of interest to real estate syndicators with the opportunity for live questions and answers at the end of the call. I am attorney Kim Lisa Taylor. Uh, Today, our topic is what to expect in multifamily for the next year with special guest David Lindahl of RE Mentor. Um, I've known David since uh, 2007 was the first time I went to the multifamily millions boot camp. I was just blown away by the amount of information that I learned during that three-day event. Um, had never been introduced to uh, multifamily in any way or any other kind of commercial real estate. Before that, I'd, I'd uh, known some stuff about single family and I'd been a real estate agent, um, but I was just completely amazed about this you know, whole different world that Dave introduced us to during that event, went to his other events, actually ended up meeting my ex-law partner at um, Dave's very first ever private money boot camp. And uh, just, you know, I've just uh, stayed in contact. I've gone to a lot of their different trainings, uh, stayed in contact. I've had a lot of uh, Dave's coaching students for clients, all of our most successful clients that have gone on and done many, many deals or gone from small deals to big deals have come through uh, RE Mentors coaching program. And uh, that is an absolute fact. So if you want to really, you know, launch and propel your business forward, you got to have the right coach. You got to have to have to have a coach, but you have to have the right coach. So, you know, that, that program has worked really well for a lot of our clients. Um, so uh, Dave has 26 years as a multifamily commercial real estate investor, 26 years experience. He also has a bachelor's degree in finance and economics, which makes him particularly suited to talk about this particular project, uh, uh, topic today. And he's completed the executive owner president management program at Harvard University. Uh, I remember uh, you know, hearing about that when Dave was doing it, and it was a, a big deal, right, Dave? At, uh, yeah, it was. Yeah, I was just talking to some classmates uh, just before we got on here. We're yeah. close together, and yeah, and if you ever time. looked that up, it's it's like crazy expensive. Um, <laughs> I just looked it up the other day, and I was like, yeah. like one hundred fifty thousand dollars to get through it, and uh, you know, but I, I'm absolutely certain that the uh, the value is there if you can afford it. Yeah, so, it Dave. Um, thank you so much for coming back. You've been our guest in the past. We really appreciate that you always want to share your wisdom with our podcast attendees. Um, but tell us a little bit about RE Mentor and what it's doing today and um, you know, and, and how you got your start in real estate. Oh, I guess started way back in 1996. I was in a rock and roll band for like eight years, uh, burnt a lot of brain cells, and then decided I needed to do something. I started a landscaping company. Um, the winter time, there was no landscaping in Boston. I was living in a one-bedroom apartment. Um, and I saw, and I saw, I tell people, I'm sorry, get rich quick. Um, vi, um, it was an infomercial and I bought the course and I got rich quick. It wasn't, it wasn't actually get rich quick, but it was, it was Carlton Sheets course. Remember that way back oh, then? Yeah. Uh-huh. 
Uh-huh. So, course, um, I was doing a re I was doing cleanups for banks in the winter time. And that's when I got his course and I started reading it and basically said, go to your local real estate investment group. They're everywhere and know that there are people that look like you, act like you, were just as broke as you. Now they're doing good through real estate. And that was true. So I went there and I started learning a bunch, like everybody, every new person. I was I was nervous and I was trying to find my way. And then I started an interview with Harry Helmsley about how he started with nothing in New York City and uh, was buying and selling apartment buildings and ended up owning the Empire State Building. Uh-huh. And the statement that he said that got me was the biographer said, Harry, what is it about apartment buildings that kept you going? And Harry said, I always liked the idea that a, a group of people would pool their money together, the tenants, and give it to me so I could pay off the mortgage on my property. I like the idea that that same group of people would Give me money every month so I could pay for maintenance guys to swing the hammers and take out the trash. I like the idea that they would give me money every month so I could hire management companies to take their phone calls and collect the rent so I didn't have to deal with them. And he said, and I also like the fact that they would give me so much money that I could pay off all those um, expenses and then have extra money that I could reinvest, put into a savings account, or just go out and have a bunch of fun with. And I was like, damn, if that's really true, and I can do it with no money because I had none. I was like, I want in. And uh, I went to my real estate investment club. I told everybody what I was going to do. They're like, you crazy. Are you kidding me? Tenants? They're going to trash the place. You know, they're not going to pay. You're going to get foreclosed on. And, you know, in the back of my mind, they made me even more nervous. But I I really believed it was true. And there was a couple of guys there uh, in that group that were buying multifamilies. They didn't really talk a lot. I started taking them out to lunch. Um, uh, One of them took me under his wing. And uh, that started it. I bought my first three family about nine months later, after I got off the, over the fear uh, of doing it. Uh, within three months, I had three more. Within six months, I had nine. Within the first year, I had 11. Within the first three years, I had over, I had under just about 40 of them. Um, and those were mostly three to sixes because I was afraid to any, buy anything bigger. Um, I did go to, while I was in the rock and roll band, I, my mother forced me to go to school. I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur, so I took finance, and then I was gravitated towards economics because my life was crazy, and economics showed me, like, there can be order and craziness. Um, So I took the economics classes, and it really helped out because when we we had got into Brockton, Massachusetts, when the market was down, and it was just starting to come up, new mayor came in. Uh, They had just built the transit system to go into Boston, which meant that you didn't have to own a car to move into Boston. Uh, I mean, to work in Boston, which is big. Uh, So they had three transit systems. They had five new schools, new sidewalks. The mayor just changed. It was like strong leadership. It's something that we always look for in markets. I didn't realize it back then, but I was just trying to get some money, earn some money. Um, And so... Uh, after about a three-year period, we had made a lot of t- millions in equity, me and my partner, um, and then a lot of cash flow. Um, and we realized that it was going to change. So we needed to do something. So I started learning about what, what you know, what moves markets. We wanted to find another market like Brockton was when it, you know, we were first starting out. So we could we didn't want, we could either get into a cash position or move the equity to another market. We decided we wanted to keep playing the game. So we wanted to move it to another market. Um, we went to Montgomery, Alabama. They were built, so we started following job growth. That's the key to uh, markets and market cycles. We started following job growth. We, follow, we, we found out that they were building a Kia plant down in Montgomery, 5,000 new jobs. Every time you have 500 or more jobs, uh, 500 or more jobs coming into a marketplace, there's what's called a, a multiplier effect. So there's ancillary jobs that are created to service the job, you know, the main job that's being built, like the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker. So Montgomery had a very small uh, multiplier. It was three, but that still meant that 20,000 new jobs were coming into this area because of that car plant. Um, and But Mo- Montgomery had what's called a barrier to entry, all right, which are really good. And in Montgomery, it was the fact that it was uh, surrounded by floodplains. 
and you can't build in the floodplains. So when all the construction workers came in and when all the new workers came in, demand started going up, but supply remained the same. So that was a recipe for really good equity. So we did well in Montgomery. We went to Jackson, Mississippi, up to Huntsville, down to Texarkana. And before I knew it, you know, we were in 19 different markets uh, around the U.S. buying properties, well, over 9,000 units. Wow. Crazy. That's amazing. And Happens then how fast. long did that take? So that was, you started doing that when and, and how long did it take you to get to 9,000 units? We, uh, nine, we hit the 9,000 mark probably, I think it was 2008, 2009. Wow. And we've been, yep, we've been going in and out, selling in and out of markets now uh, since then. But yeah, it wasn't, you know, when it happens, like for instance, when I bought, and we see this with, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure you see it as well, is, you know, once people get into their first deal, it's like things just take off because they got to get their systems in place in order to do it. They got to get their team in place in order to do it. But more importantly, they have the confidence like, hey, this actually works. You know, so now they're more open to doing that next deal. A lot of the fear is gone and they have their their team in place. And, you know, they've, already, they've done the legwork. Another deal comes very shortly after and then another one. And you're off yeah, and running. I've definitely seen, you know, the first deal is always the hardest because you don't you know have your systems in place. You don't have your investor marketing plans lined up. Um, but easier. second deal is easier. Third deal is much easier. By the fourth deal, you've got people waiting to get into your deals. Yeah, but there's also one other thing that that has not been usually broken through yet, and that is limiting beliefs. People's limiting beliefs as to whether or not they can do this business. And unfortunately, some people, their limiting beliefs beat them, you know, but other people, they train on that. Like, for instance, I had huge limiting beliefs, you know, and I didn't realize I was I was brought up uh, lower middle class. My mother was a fish cutter and my father worked uh, two jobs to support the family. Um, and when like all the good stuff was always for the other people. My family was really, really frugal. My mother was an envelope lady. You know, she used to put the money in the envelopes for the budget. At the end of the week, she had like, I remember when I was 10 years old and I, when I first realized, you know, it's like, what are you doing, mom? She says, oh, I'm doing the budget. You know, this is for food and this is for gas and this is for your kids' clothes and your kids' lunches and all that. And, and uh, outside the envelopes, it was three $1 bills. And I said, mom, you forgot to put those in somewhere. And she said, no, that's my extra money. And I was like, you only have three dollars extra after you pay all the bills, and she's like, "Yep." And I was like, "I thought I was like, damn, I think we're poor," <laughs> but you know, I never realized we were poor. We had a lot of love in our family, but that's the mentality that we had. You know, the mentality was that it's for other people, and we're just not going to get there. We're not going to, you know, that, that this is our lot in life. And then uh, I I listened to Lead the Field, Earl Nightingales. You know, somebody had given to, given me that because they found it. Six uh, six cassettes set back then. Now it's free on um, eBay. So if anybody wants to go check that out, it's awesome. It, what was the, 19- the name again? Lead the field. Leave the Girl field. The field. Oh, yeah. oh, leave the field. Okay, leave the field. Three right. and a half hours. Yep. And uh, and and the most important thing is to listen and do what it says. There's a shorter one by Earl, uh, The Stranger's Secret. It, it tells you to do one thing, and if you just do that one thing, your life will start to change. So uh, after I got into lead the field and things started changing, um, I read, that's when Tony Robbins first came out with Awaken the Giant Within. Read that, did what he said, life started changing even more. And before I knew it, boom, you know, my business is blowing up, my life's blowing up and life was good. You know, I know so that that's, so the one that worked for me was uh, Miracle Morning. Miracle Morning was amazing. Uh, oh, Miracle Mornings are awesome. Yeah. 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 Take charge of your day, whether it's Miracle Morning or whatever you're doing, just get up and shake, take charge of that day. Get some sort of and just doing the visualization. That was the thing that was the most astounding to me because I, you know, I like took my pictures and put them on my board and I looked at them every day and I did my affirmations and all that. And like 18 months later, like I had the house I envisioned, I had the car I envisioned, you know, all that stuff just like happened. 
Yeah, it's it's amazing. Um, all yeah, right. Anybody really wants to get into? Well, let me share one more book. It's yeah. called Abra- from Abraham Hicks. Um, uh, Asking it will be given. Have you read that book? I have not. So it's a really it's, it's a really strange book because she like channels a medium. It's kind of like foo-foo stuff, but okay. in reality, if you read it and get the underlying message, which is all about the law of vibration, that is truly how you change your life. You just, you just believe it and it happens. Cause you know, and, and I think it's you believe it and it happens because then you do the things necessary to make it happen. No, the, yeah, right. The, that's the law of cause and effect. There's uh, 12 laws of the universe. Anybody listening, go Google 12 laws of the universe. That's how you become successful. But uh, the law of vibration is, is, is all about being in the, in, everything vibrates. So being in the same frequency of what you want, you'll, you'll collect it, connect it, connect with it. If you're in the frequency of being negative, then you attract negativity because you connect into that frequency. But anyways, read that book. You'll understand it then. It is a life changer. That's amazing. All right. Well, um, let's get on to today's topic. Uh, so interest rates keep hiking. And there was just another interest rate hike. What is that doing to the multifamily market? Big. It's really exciting to see the Fed say that there's not going to be a soft landing, that there's going to be pain in the economy. That means we are going into the reset that we have been waiting for for years now. Um, so it's really, it's a really, really exciting time. It's a, it's a time for preparation. It's a time to get ready for the next long, um, you know, the long upside. Because what the Fed basically says is we're not going to stop raising rates until until inflation gets down to two percent, you know. And they said that we're going to raise rates. That we know that we're going to lose about one point four job, one point four million jobs in the economy, um, and they they know there's going to be pain uh, in the marketplace. So therefore, they're willing to go through that pain to reset the market in order to have better times ahead. Um, the, the Fed came came right out and said, you know, people are. Are, are putting bids on houses without even seeing them for above asking price. We're going to put a stop to that. And they're going to put a stop to that through demand destruction is, is, is what they call it. You so know, what does that mean? So there's going to be a reset. Does that mean that the prices are going to fall? Um, yeah. So there's two different dynamics going on right now. So we've got, we do have a reset happening. We, prices do need to fall because of the fact that interest rates are going up. When interest rates go up, cap rates go down. Um, and so value, you lose value, uh, in that sense. So, but, but then, so now at the same time, you know, the country needs to build anywhere between 300 and 400,000 multifamily units per year. And because of the cost of labor, because of the lack of labor, there needs to be approximately 740,000 new construction jobs. Uh, there are 740,000 new construction jobs opening up every year in the marketplace, uh, but there's not that many workers coming into the marketplace. So there's a there's a worker shortage, there's a supply shortage. So we're seeing prices increase. The developers, the builders, because of those two things, aren't able to build at the rate that we really need to to meet the market. So what does that mean? That means that um, the inventory remains the same or increases slower than it should, um, and it means that people are either um, stepping aside, waiting for the reset to happen, or they're competing against each other for fewer assets, which which will drive prices up. Mm-hmm. But eventually, because interest rates continuously going up, uh, prices will stabilize and then start to decrease because of the increase in cap rates. So, so 
it seems to me there's always some kind of a lag, uh, like between yeah. when the prices adjust, when the interest rates change, or when something happens in the lending world, lenders stop lending, like happened the last time, um, and the sellers actually kind of catch on and, and realize they've got to do something with their pricing. Is is that what you've seen? Oh, sellers always catch on last, right? It's like grasping onto the falling knives. They know what the somebody got, you know, just last month, and they want to get the same thing, but yet the market's changed. And then they wait, you know, they they're firm about that price, and the market changes again another month later. And then, you know, all right, so they've 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 in their mind they're okay with the fact that they are going to get that lower price, um, but the market's moved again lower. You know, so you've got sellers out there that are chasing lower prices. But you're right um, regarding the, the the lagging indicators. Uh, that's probably about two quarters. So the, the the rate hikes that happened yesterday, we're going to see the effects two quarters from now. Uh, yeah, I was thinking it was at least 90 days, but yeah, you're probably right. It's more like one to two. Um, yeah. One thing we will see is we'll see the interest rates increase immediately because they increase that rate. And, we'll, and that will mean that the um, the lending rates will go up as well, which will mm-hmm. dampen demand. And which yeah, means that less people qualify. Right. We need we need more. Right. So more like right now, guarantors, you know, more sponsors on a deal, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Not only that, there's more negotiations going on. Like for instance, we're negotiating two deals right now. And before we, we had a good indication, they gave us a good indication that the, the, the Fed was going to raise between 0.75 and one. So, you know, you place your offer, but then it's always contingent upon, you know, what you can get for financing, what's available. Well, and so, you know, the typical cycles go for what, eight years? Are we in some kind of an eight, eight year cycle eight now? Years. Where are we going to have to hold on to these interest rates for eight years before anybody's going to be able to refinance their properties? Like if someone buys something now, is it going to be eight years before they can refinance or is there going to be some place within that that there's going to be an adjustment? No, no, actually, if somebody buys something now, at these higher interest rates, uh, I think you'll start seeing interest rates start going down sometime uh, 12 months from now, 12 to 18 months from now. They should okay. start going down again. And when they start going down again, I mean, there's the opportunity right there. So you get you, you get yourself ready for this reset because then there's a long upside run. I mean, from 2010 to now, you know, last year, actually, you know, we've just seen people. I actually, you know, we started doing one-off deals because I was afraid of this market about three years ago, because it should have reset before the last election and mm-hmm. it didn't wait for the election. And then COVID happened. And that was a whole nother, uh, you know, set of dynamics. So, um, so I've been nervous about the markets, even though there's opportunities out there to do one offs, there hasn't been the opportunity to go into a market, place a flag and do like four or five deals, you know, and stay there. So when you're buying now, and it's much like when I first started buying way back in 1996, I was back then I was buying uh, at interest rates at 15, 16, 17%. You know, if you remember those days and then um, and then all of a sudden, you know, the rates start going down and I'm refinancing my properties and I'm getting all this additional cash flow just because I've refinanced into a lower rate and the cash flow increases the value of the property. So that's going to be another opportunity. You buy conservative net conservatively. Now you buy with good, um, uh, good numbers. Um, You know, the, the thing you do now is. You've got to be really conservative in your, under, in your, in your underwriting. You've got to be taking a look at, okay, so what happens if occupancy dips? What happens if concessions go up? You know, what happens if revenues dip? And you got to put that in, into your underwriting. And when you put that into your, in your underwriting and you're in good markets, you got to look at markets that have historically done well in down cycles. And um, the market cycle itself in those markets is shorter. You know, a market like Dallas, Texas, 
a market like um, Salt Lake City, Utah, like the good markets to be looking at right now are, are uh, Dallas, Salt Lake, Atlanta, Charlotte, Orlando. Those are some of the best markets. And even though they're some of the best markets, you, you've got to be looking in the right submarkets in those markets as well. And inside those submarkets, you've got to be buying the right properties, which are typically B assets. Uh, value adds right now. There's a lot of people doing. There's a lot of people that are going to get hurt, and uh, you've probably seen it because you've done a lot of deals. But there's a lot of people the last couple of years that you know the the primary um, the primary returns were coming from the value add that was going to take anywhere from 12 to 18 to 36 months to execute. Right. Well, I started seeing those deals start coming in. And I was just like, you know, you got to be careful. You got to be really, really careful. So those deals are actually going to come back on the market because people, unfortunately, they're going to lose those deals. It was just. This is the wrong time to do things like that. Well, and I think the other real risk that I've been warning people about are, are bridge loans, short bridge loans. Yeah. You know, because if if you get to a point where you're at the end of your bridge loan and you can't refinance, um, you know, or because the interest rates are still high, you're going to be in a world of hurt uh, and you may end up losing that property yeah. as a bridge lender. Yeah. Like a year or two years ago, the bridge loans, you know, getting in by bridge loans was the thing. You know, mm-hmm. get in by the bridge loan, and then you know you get in cheaper. You get additional cash flow. You can make these deals pencil out because of the bridge loan. But now the risk of the bridge loan is coming to fruition. It's the fact that rates have actually risen. Yeah, right. And and what I saw in the last recession was that the people who had overleveraged their properties and had short balloon payments were the ones that actually ended up losing their properties. Was that your experience too? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, during the last cycle, you know, when uh, Lehman Brothers collapsed, it was really like nobody predicted that that cycle was going to end so fast. And we had bought a lot of deals between 2006 and 2008. Um, we were averaging a, a complex and a half a month during those times, crazy times. Um, the deals that we did in 2008 uh, near the near the crash were, were, I wouldn't say they were riskier than 2006, 2007, but just the, the numbers themselves in those deals and the feeling that, wow, you know, everything's going right. You know, the, the deals are coming in we can underwrite at this. So we can be a little bit aggressive. Once we started getting a little bit aggressive, we got a little bit aggressive late in the market, you know, and those were, those were our most difficult deals for our 2008 deals from the last cycle. So now, so I had that. So then you, of course you focus on the deals that are giving you the hardest times to make sure that you don't have to do any capital calls with your investors. So the investors get their returns. Um, and then you almost forego everything else. I mean, I wasn't really buying like I should have in 2010 because I was more concerned about the deals I bought in 2008. So I learned that lesson from that particular cycle, and I wasn't going to do it again uh, in this cycle. So we're out there buying one-offs, but they have to meet the right criteria. We take them under excruciating underwriting to make sure that they're going to weather the storm. Oh, we, they were going to weather the storm that we thought was coming, and now it's here. So the model that I've seen most of our clients using for, say, the last year has been 70-30 split and 8% preferred returns. Is this market somewhere where you know the our clients should be thinking about re-educating their investors and maybe offering a different preferred return or different splits? You know, it all depends on the uh, like the investor universe that a particular syndicator has. I know I know guys out there that are doing six percent preferred return for their investors, but their investors are made of uh, uh, people with four hundred one ks, you know, self directed IRAs, mm-hmm. and they're happy to get that return. I mm-hmm. know international investors that don't want anything less than a ten, 
You know, so yeah, it's not so much as a re-education of your investors. Maybe it's a repopulation of your investors. You know, investors, one of the things I learned as a syndicator is you educate your investors as to what, you know, what you're bringing them. Uh, there was one time we were always offering an 8% cash on cash return. And then we, we went to this flurry of four or five deals where we could offer a 10 and an 11 and we did. Um, and then we came back with the regular eight and we couldn't fill it. You know, it was hard to fill. Yeah. It's like, why is anybody taking this deal? It's a great deal. Like, Oh, wait for your next 10. Yeah. Yeah. I told them it was going to be an eight knowing that it was going to be a 10, you know, and then just had really happy investors at the, you know, during and after the deal. So we learned our lesson there on that one. We also, here's a couple other things for syndicators that are listening. Another lesson I learned is when you have multiple deals, you segment your list and you only expose parts of your list to a particular deal. Uh, because what we did is at one time we had we had five deals going on at the same time. We had a really hard time filling them, even though before that we had filled a ton of deals. And I said to Jeannie, who is our investor relations coordinator over here, I said, I said, Jeannie, what's going on? I said, why aren't these deals filling? She, she said, well, people just can't make up their mind. And then I got it, you know, I, we could, you know, a confused mind says no. Mm-hmm. So people weren't sure which one to go into. And then the third lesson I learned is when you train your investors to come in off of these, um, you know, do, doing one off deals, it's really, really difficult to establish a fund because oh, we had yeah. uh, to do a $20 million fund. We had raised far more than that uh, prior to that. So we, we didn't think it was going to be a problem. And then all of a sudden it wasn't, it wasn't filling. it's like, why isn't this thing filling? So we'd call investors and say, you know, why, why aren't you filling? And they would say, well, put a couple of properties in there. Let me see what we're going to do. Let me see the groceries, you know, mm-hmm. and then, then instead of going into the fund. So when we realized that was happening, we, we put four properties in that fund relatively quickly and then we filled it. But, yeah. I, I have experienced that again and again and again with clients that come to us and want to do a fund. And the first thing I do is counsel them on, should you really do a fund? We actually have an article about that on our website because a lot of people shouldn't do a fund. And uh, then it's a matter of deal flow. If you don't have you know, deals coming hard and fast, you're going to have a hard time filling your fund. And you're still only going to raise the money when you need it for a deal because you don't want you know millions of dollars sitting there not getting a return because eventually your investors are going to want it back. So that's, that's kind of what that's I tell people. So yeah, it's very hard to go from specified <laughs> offerings to funds. We've had multiple clients that have said the same thing you just said, Dave, that uh, they tried to go to funds from their specified offering model and the investors didn't like it and they ended up going back. Um, so, you know, the, the specified offering model works. You know, you've got one property under contract, you're raising money for that deal. People can look at it. They can do a Google flyover. They can make sure it's a for real property and they feel more comfortable investing that way. Um, yeah. yeah, and I think the mindset of a, a syndicator that hasn't done a fund before but has yet struggled to do one-offs is the fact that, hey, I'll raise this fund and I'll have all the money ready to spend. But in reality, you still have to raise the money, but now you're raising it for something that people can't see. It becomes even more difficult. That's right. That's right. And, and, then, and then there's uh, people that have abused funds and you know they always make the news. And so, you know, people get this image in their head of, you know, you standing next to a private jet and driving a fancy car while they're still driving their Toyota and, and they're not getting the returns that you promised them. So, you know, you have to you have to overcome that. Um, so, all right. What about your Holy Trinity, Dave? Is Can you tell us about that? And uh, is it still alive and well? 
Yeah. So one of the, one of the things we teach as uh, here at our mentor for for newer investors is to look at deals conservatively when you first start out to make sure you're successful. You'll make your biggest mistakes in your first three or four deals. So you don't want to make a mistake that's going to knock you out of the game. So the first uh, uh, decision you have is whether you're going to do what's called a momentum play, a deal that cash flows at closing, or a deal that's a repositioning, less than eighty five percent occupancy, and you have to do some sort of a lift tenant profile, and also some sort of a rehab to the property. So momentum plays are always the ones we have people start out with. And then we have them start out with a conservative formula in order to get into these deals. And that is a capitalization rate of eight plus, uh, a cash on cash return of 12 plus, and then a debt coverage ratio of 1.6. And when you have those three ratios aligned with each other, that means that you can bring your investors in, in the deal, give them an 8% cash on cash return first year, and you get to carve out 25% of that deal for yourself. So it's a good conservative model to start. Now, is it working in today's marketplace? It still does. You know, one of the questions I've consistently gotten through the years, because this is the model I use as well, but I've consistently gotten through the years is, David, in, in different markets, it's, Dave, this is a really tight market now. How do I change the Trinity? And the answer is, you don't. You know, you just focus on deals that meet that trinity. Um, now, after you've done a few deals, like three or four deals, uh, and you've got experience, and I call it building your real estate gut, you know, after you've built your real estate gut and you've executed on a value add, maybe the value adds to raise the rent or value add to increase occupancy, after you've executed on a couple of those and, and you really understand how to do them, then you can start playing with that trinity. Then you can you know, go in a little bit light, knowing that you have a value add that you're going to execute within like six or seven months to bring those numbers up there. And your investors are going to be okay with that. That's when you, so you go in conservative, you get some deals, some, some good deals that are working under your belt, and then you can start adjusting the model to, to the way you want to invest. So can you go ahead and just give us your, uh, your three numbers again? Yeah. Cap, cap rate of eight plus. The cap rate covers you as the investor. It's your unleavened return. The cash on cash return is a twelve. That that tells you what your that tells you what your you know your cash flow is going to be during the year in the deal. Uh, the investors get eight. You get four percent of that. That ends up actually being twenty five percent of the deal. Um, and then debt coverage ratio, which tells the bank how many times your um, cash flow is covering your debt, should be at one point six. So you need an, an extra sixty cents left over uh, from your debt coverage um, in order to be conservative into a deal. Excellent. And especially, especially in times like these, I mean, if somebody's going into a, a deal at a 1.25, which the banks are offering for a debt coverage ratio, that is um, that is not being conservative in this market. That's, that's good to know. I mean, everybody always thinks, well, you know, the markets change, the, the numbers have to change. But if you stick with the solid principles, you can't go wrong, right? You're, you're, you're less likely to make a fatal mistake. Don't be afraid to do less deals. You know, uh, I've got a partner and he's like, we, a couple of years ago, he's like, we have to do deals. We got to do deals. It's like, no, we don't got to do deals. I said, the last thing you want to do is do a marginal deal that comes in and then have to really work and worry about that deal to make sure that you're going to get the returns, you know, that you, you, you forecasted for your investors. I mean, that's not what, that's not what life's about. You know, I've been through that. I've done, you know, my worst deal was a 400 unit in Huntsville, Alabama. And, uh, it was a repositioning. It was my fourth deal, fourth deal out of Boston. And um, it was 46% occupied. And I thought, oh, no problem. You know, I've done some successful deals already. I had about 800 units in Boston, but they were like on three, three to six units. And um, I was like, oh, no problem. You know, what I didn't know was just enormous. And that deal, which I brought investors in, I thought it was going to take me two to three years, get everybody like a three or $4 million profit. It took six years 
because I didn't want to do any capital calls, I took four million out of my pocket over those years and just broke even at the end. And it was just, you know, so it's like I didn't need to do that deal. I could have gotten into so many other deals, you know, momentum play that I had to pass up on just because I had to focus on this deal. So that's so that's that's the lesson. The lesson is you don't have to do deals. You know, you just you, you you take the deals as they come. Entrench yourself in a market. You know, decide which market you want to go into next. You know, build your team in that market. Um, uh, and then you know when the when the right deal comes along, it will come. And that deal will come along through relationship building. You know, relationship building, or you might do some direct mail campaigns as well. Two two good forms of uh, deal sourcing. That's great advice. In fact, that was the next question I was going to ask: is what should people be doing to prepare for changing times? Um, anything else you'd add to that? No, it's just uh, for, for those that are just starting out, um, mm-hmm. just go through the process of, of building your teams, of selecting your market, uh, of going into that marketing and looking at deals, analyzing deals, um, get your systems in place, and then a deal will pop. I mean, this is a, it, it isn't a market where you know a bunch of deals are going to come on. That's going to come a little bit later, uh, maybe a year from now. Uh, but you do one or two deals from now and then, maybe three, and um, you built your real estate gap and you'll be prepared because see in a market that uh, like back in 2009, 2010, after the 2008 financial crisis. All right. So deals started popping onto the marketplace. People started getting foreclosed on a 60, I think it was 62% of all commercial mortgages went underwater uh, back in 2010. I mean, it was huge from the effects of the uh, financial crisis. So the deals that, um, that came in in 2010 they were numerous. Uh, as the as the financial crisis went through 2008 and half of 2009, there wasn't a lot of opportunities in the marketplace, but there were opportunities. 2000 at the end of 2009, 2010, that's when everything started popping in. So there was there was two types of deals coming in. They are and they look very similar. One's the gold mine. You're going to make a ton of money. It's going to be an easy deal to do because you bought it, you bought the right deal, the right place with the right numbers. The other one's a landmine. There was something <laughs> inside of that that you didn't understand or see, but it looked like a really good deal going in right. and it exposed itself within that first year. And it's like, oh shit, you know, and then you have to deal with it and work with it. So building your gut before the opportunity of all these other properties coming onto the marketplace is smart because you will recognize the landmines uh, from the gold mines. Well, and one of the things I tell people is if you want to, you know, really get experience or you haven't done a deal before, a team with somebody else who's done deals and you can leverage off their experience and, and really propel yourself forward versus trying to learn it all from scratch by yourself. And, you know, that's both using a coach or just participating, you know, with a, a, a somebody who's more experienced that's done a few deals. Um, One of the things we've seen through the years is that people that come to the Multifamily Millions Bootcamp, most of them are people that want to be active investors, but then there's a good good percentage that, that are passive investors, but they want to know how to analyze a deal. They want to know how to analyze a team. They want to know how to analyze a market. So they're the smart investors. You know, They want to understand everything before they hand some of their money over to somebody else. So, yeah, and that's why I wrote my book uh, was not just for active uh, syndicators, but also for people who want to passively invest. Because if you learn what the syndicators are supposed to be doing and the sponsors are supposed to be doing, then you're going to be able to figure out whether they're doing it. And the last chapter is all about, you know, 10 things you should know or ask before you invest in a syndicate. Um, so that's that's all good stuff. So you mentioned a couple of times that you have to get your systems in place. What systems does a syndicator need to get in place? Well, certainly you've got to get your um, capital raising systems in place. And that is, how are you going to do it? How are you going to expose yourself out into the market to uh-huh. entice 
going to your deals on a regular basis to build your list, as they say. Yep. You know, there's a lot. Um, you know, one of the things that's changed in the recent years is social media. There's a lot, a lot of people now going onto social media, doing their own podcasts. It's really smart. You know, people get to really know them through their podcasts um, and, and the different posts that they're doing and they get comfortable with them. And then before you know it, um, you know, they're getting more people on their list. But then there's just the regular grind. You know, it's going into uh, now the business meetings are starting to open up again. So it's going into the business meetings. It's good being in social groups, you know, and knowing what to say, which is basically if you're in any type of a social situation and somebody says to you, hey, what have you been up to? Like, oh, I've been investing in in, um, um, in emerging real estate markets. And they're like, what? And basically just by saying something where they say in their mind, says, what, how do they do that? Then they'll take you down the road with their objections on what you're doing. But the questions they ask, they're actually asking their objections. You handle those objections and, and, and they will close themselves usually at the end. It's like, hey, if you're, ever, if you're ever looking for a partner or do you have partners, you know, let me know. It's like, okay, I'll put you on the list. You know, and some people, they just, um, they disqualify themselves. They're like, okay, you know, that isn't, you know, a couple of questions. And then they talk about the fear that they have, or I never tried to like talk somebody into investing with me. That's the, that's the last thing you want to do because I will certainly answer any objection that somebody might have that they want to ask me. But if then they say, no, that's not for me. I don't try to like talk to them and try to convert them in. I, I want people that want to be investors. You know, the people that you have to convert in or the people that put in the, the least amount of money in any particular deal, they're always the biggest pain in the ass. You know, they're always the ones that they don't quite understand it or they were nervous and they'll be nervous all along. And it just doesn't make investing fun. And if you're a syndicator, see the repositioners, people that buy properties less than 85% occupancy and reposition them up to the market and syndicators have a burnout point. You know, you can only do it for so long because there's so much stress involved in both of those, those skill sets um, that you eventually burn out. So and you burn out faster when you t- bring the wrong people into your deals. You know, mm-hmm. and, and you're, you're always align yourself with your investors. But if you've brought the wrong people in, it just becomes a nightmare or it can be. There's always somebody who's the smartest person in the room, but yet they don't know anything. Do you know what I mean? And they're really good at convincing everybody else. I learned that through the uh, te- the ticks that I did, tenant comments that I did way back in the uh, early 2000s. Crazy. Yeah, you have to be careful, both uh, making sure they're financially qualified, but also compatible you know, mentally, right? <laughs> people. Yeah, you can be married to these people for the for the life of the deal. That's right. That's yeah. right. I had one deal. I had, I had one deal in Texas that was the investors. I don't know why there was such a cluster of investors that were very difficult to work with. I mean, they micromanaged everything, which I don't have a problem with investors coming in and looking and asking questions and going to the property. And we, we go to meetings. I always do um, whenever there's decisions to be made out. It's always a group decision, you know, and then if, if all of a sudden it looks like it's going in the wrong, uh, wrong direction, then I try to like sway it to what the, what the right decision should be. But um the, this, these investors, every monthly statement that went out, you know, you have a variance. You know, if anything's ten percent above or ten percent below what the what the forecast was or what the budget was, that's that's just a natural variance. These people, they're like, all right, how much? How, how can we spend an extra, you know, forty cents on paper clips this month? How, you know, wh- what happened there? It gets to be so it gets so good. Like, let's be facetious, but it gets so crazy. So I sold the property, and we got a really good return on it. And so when I told the investors we were selling the property, they're like. Uh, they were happy because they were getting such a big return. And then they said, well, you know, where are we going next? Where are you going to put our money next? And I'm like, nowhere. <laughs> like in the back of my mind, it's like, nowhere, not for you people. You guys aren't in any more of my deals. Right. I want deals to be fun. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to be careful about people like that. And I've seen that happen to you. Um, 
All right. So what about any other asset classes besides multifamily? Do you have uh, any opinions on about any of those? Yeah, storage. Storage is good. Um, right now, you know, it's somewhat recession proof. Uh, COVID did have a big bump in the market. You got to be careful about that. You know, people stored a bunch of stuff. Um, um, that asset class saw like a, a, a rise, but I like storage because it is somewhat recession proof, you know, and there is, it's it's the time to be learning multifamily. Uh, the amount of deals in multifamily aren't, aren't as great as they will be a year from now. Um, but at the same time, you know, the storage, you, you get entrenched in storage as well. And it's, I always told people ever since I've been uh, teaching um, that 30 uh, storage would be a good 30% of your portfolio. You know, if you had a, a storage portfolio of 30% of what you own in multifamily, that'd be a good, good ratio. That's nice. I, I think uh, storage is alive and well, as long as Amazon is doing well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this way. Sure. Uh, um, all right. So what would you tell somebody who's brand new to syndication? How would they get started? Uh, well, the first thing you do is learn how to invest properly. You know, before you start talking to investors to, to come into your deals, you really need to understand uh, deals. When people come into our mentorship program, I do the live onboarding with them. Um, and uh, the two things I talk about are mindset, which I talked about before, because I know in teaching for 20 years, mindset is going to be the difference between those that make it and don't. So that's why we stress it. And we have all kinds of trainings on it. The second thing is underwriting. The people think, Oh, I got to have a relationship with a broker and I got to go out and I got to start, I got to start, you know, getting deals coming in, deal flow coming in. It's like, no, no, no. You've got to understand what good underwriting is and, and how to do it before you start talking to a broker or, or a um, investor or a sponsor because, or a bank. Because they know what good underwriting looks like, and if you show them underwriting that's not good, if you're missing things, and they're just gonna check you off and you check you off in their brain. So the most important thing is learn learn what good underwriting looks like. Now, here's the thing with that: there are some people that are good in math, and some people that don't like math. Like I've never been a math person, but I realized, you know, in, in every business there are certain things that you need to know about. So I learned how to do good underwriting. I did a lot of underwriting at the beginning, so I could really understand it, and then I was able to give it off to somebody else. The only thing I do now is I approve underwriting. You know, some people say, this is a deal. And I'll say, okay, send me the underwriting. That's already been through somebody else on my team. You know, somebody with a deal will bring it to us and they'll say, I think this is a good deal. And then it will go to a team member. They'll look at, they'll review that underwriting and they'll do their own thing. A lot of times they kick them out because the underwriting, you know, uh, didn't work out. Uh, and then if it's good and it looks like a deal, then it comes to me. And that's the way I like it because I can focus on, I'm a, I'm a good relationship builder. That's my strength. So that's what I focus on. Okay, so learn to develop relationships, get your mindset squared away, learn how to underwrite. Um, and, and so I think the building relationships is kind of the third, first the mindset, then the underwriting, and then start building your relationships with your brokers, your investors, uh, reaching out to sellers. Is that kind of what you, yep. what you would say? Yeah. Yep. And, and I would add to that, get a coach. Get a coach. If you don't know yeah. what you gotta you got to get educated. And, you know, I talked to a lot of people they are like, well, I just read some books or, you know, you know, I watched this podcast and I, I'm not sure that's enough. I really think that the, the people that have been most successful and have come back to us again and again to do more and more deals have always started with a coach. And I can't stress that enough because the people that haven't done that, they've done a lot of one or maybe two deals and then you just don't hear from them anymore. They're not doing deals, you know, either because they bought the wrong yeah. thing. Or they got burned out because they, you know, they did something wrong, and they just don't do deals anymore. Here's the thing. Here's the thing with with coach. Uh, you know, the coach. 
we, you know, through the, our, our, our different events that we have, we offer coaching programs. Um, and the one thing we learned is people join because either they want to be held accountable because they know that they're, you know, they, they tend to drift off um, or they want to be successful faster. And there's no way to be successful faster than to be with somebody that's already done it, you know, and, and have them oversee what you're doing. And to, you know, sometimes uh, we have people, some of our clients that are not putting in offers because they're afraid. And it's the coach that says, put that offer in. You know, because all of a sudden they realize like, oh my God, I got to take the next step. I've got to, you know, I'm going to get this deal done. Then the then real, you know, fear, more fear starts coming in. But with anything, like I made my biggest mistake. I was fortunate. Um, I had uh, one of my hard money lenders was my first mentor. Um, and he's the one that taught me to be a very conservative investor. But one of the things he told me was don't, don't invest outside of Massachusetts because you don't need to increase that risk of, you know, not being at the property. So he didn't really understand how to how to be a national investor and go after emerging markets. So I found another person to mentor me through that, but it wasn't until after I did that deal in Huntsville. And I wish I had that person before I did that deal in Huntsville because they would have told me, "Don't do that deal." You know, it would have saved me 6 years of my life, 4 million out of my pocket. Uh, but, you know, from my limited knowledge that I had at the time, I thought, hey, I can do this. This is a no brainer. I didn't know what I didn't know. That's yeah. the other thing. So right. Walk on, you know, walk, if somebody's willing to lend you a hand, take it. Especially if, you know, this business, I have seen so many people come in broke through, you know, through our, our system here and, and in multifamily itself. And, you know, in a very short period of time, two, three years, they get so many different deals under their belts and their lives changing and, you know, they, you know, over here around Christmas time, they send chocolates, they send, they send these great letters about how they're able to spend time with a dying father, how they, you know, how they were able to um, take their children out of a one bedroom apartment in Los Angeles. I'm thinking about a woman whose husband was killed in Iraq, you know, and, and she was, she was destitute and she realized she was going to get evicted if she didn't do something. She started buying multifamily and, you know, a few short, short years later, she's owning a 123 acre horse farm you know, north of Dallas, and that's where she's raising her kids. And so just the the amount of change and the um, the quickness of the change in somebody's lives that this business can do. My, you know, my mom used to work here. And we and sometimes I walk by her office and, uh, and she, moms love to tell people what to do. But she say, she just say, you got to do it. It's just amazing. People come in here and they have nothing. And two or three years later, they're rich. And she's, and, you know, it was just to be so amazing to her. Her my aunt Edna, they both used to be here. And they were just at the family parties. They would just talk about it. So it's amazing. Yeah, it, it is pretty amazing. And I've seen that same thing happen with our clients as well. Uh, that, you know, the, the changes are pretty profound. I've seen people start buying three to $5 million properties. And six years later, they're buying 30 to $50 million properties. And then the process, you know, their lifestyle has completely changed. Uh, you know, and these are people that have come out of Dave's program. So, uh, so, all right, well, we've got some Q and a, but before we go to the questions, um, I want you to tell us about some upcoming events that you're going to, uh, RE Mentor is doing. We have ultimate partner. Yep. We have ultimate partnering in Phoenix, October 21st. Yep. Kim's always there. Yep. She's going to do a presentation this year as well. Uh, but ultimate partnering is we've been teaching since 2002. Uh, we have our alumni students come back, people that have really, really done well. Um, and then we have newer people that have never been to the event as well. And they get to mingle with each other. They they get to know each other. The one thing about our community, it's like a big community of love. Everybody wants to help each other, um, uh, help each other become successful. Uh, so at that particular event, the one remark that we get from other people that have been to that event for the first time is, I can't believe there are so many people doing deals. 
You know, I've never been into an event where there's just so many people doing deals. So at that event, you'll be able to um, meet money partners. There are alumni students that have done very well. They're looking to sponsor other people's deals and, and, and bring capital. There are people that are bringing deals. You'll be There'll be a ton of deals there that you can invest in if you're looking to invest in deals. Um, and then there are business partners. We've had so many different um, uh, companies being formed from Ultimate Partnering. I think of the Quanta, the Quantro Group. You know, they came in 2009. Five of them get together. It's unusual that five people will get together and build a company. But between 2009 through COVID uh, to now, they've done over 24 deals together and they all met at ultimate partnering okay. so it's the networking is what it's all about and then there's the um uh, there's great education from the front of the room as well so that's ultimatepartnering.com if you want to take a look at that and then we always have we have multi-family millions boot camps on a regular basis so you can you can go to rementor.com or call the office 781-878-7114 and um they'll tell you when the next one near you is going to be and private money boot camp Oh yeah, private money bootcamp is uh, next weekend. That's right. That's right. In uh, Washington D.C. Kim teaches the attorney. Mm -hmm. uh, the attorney when she said I was at the very first private money bootcamp. I didn't do that bootcamp until like we were. What was that? Two thousand seven, right? Yeah. Yeah. Seven years after. No, five years after I started teaching. Why? Because I was afraid that people were going to misunder misinterpret something I said from stage, and they're going to go up and screw up a deal, and then they're going to come back to get me. And then I finally thought, well, you know what? I'm going to have an attorney just teach everything, and that way, if somebody comes back, they can go back at the attorney. <laughs> you know? So, so Kim teaches the attorney part, and then Bob Bowman, one of my partners, uh, he teaches. Um, the dialogue that you have, where to find your investors and how to talk to them, what to say, when to say it. It's just, it's great. It's a really, really good event. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's a great event. I, I love that event. Um, You'd have to call the office for that. Um, uh, or you, it's all available on your uh, website as well. If you go to RE Mentor and then go to their live events page, you can sign up for any one of those. Um, to uh, promote, uh, uh, if you just want to be passive for now.com, I got a new website called PassiveForNow.com. That's for passive investors. If you want to see the deals that we're doing, you can go in there, you can sign up, and then we'll show you what we're doing. You don't necessarily have to invest with us, uh, but if you'd like to see what's going on, do that. If you want to be an active investor, go to uh, rementor.com or a good passive investor, also rementor.com. All right. Well, let's get to our cute uh, questions. Um, so uh, someone asks, uh, I'm in the middle of a negotiation. Can you send me a replay? We do We do send out the replays, but it usually takes us a little while to process them. So maybe in a week or so. Um, let's see. Uh, Brian asks, uh, I bought a small multifamily uh, at a 7.75% interest rate with the 30-year debt service coverage ratio, or I guess 30-year maturity. I was hoping to raise rents and refinance next year based on Fed's commitment to raise interest rates and anticipated reduction in value, increased cap rates. Do you think that will happen or should I just plan to hold it through the market shift? So it, it, that's such broad information. It's hard to um, yeah. analyze because there's a lot of questions that go on there. Like what market are you in? Where are your rents comparable to comparable properties in the area? I'll be happy to analyze that for you. Uh, call the office 781-878-7114. And I'll be happy to sit down with you and analyze that particular uh, deal in, in that particular market. Oh, that's very generous of you, Dave. Um, all right. Lewis asks, uh, what was the name of the last book uh, that Dave mentioned? I did put the uh, books that Dave mentioned in the chat. So if you can access the chat, go down to like open up the chat. And then if you look at the three dots that are uh, just the right of where you would type a, your, uh, your question, you can uh, right click that and copy that chat. Um, so just look in the chat. Um, let's see how Catherine asks, how likely is an investor going to invest 
when there is no PREF return being offered? Um, very unlikely because the PREF is pretty much the standard. I, I, I guess I would say if you can show with your underwriting that they're going to get at least as much as you would offer with a PREF or more within the first two years, then you probably can offer that. You can do a straight split deal. But if your underwriting only shows that you're they're going to be getting you know three or four percent for the first couple of years, that's going to be a really hard sell. Okay. Um, yeah, your last point was really important. That's true uh, this, because people don't like to have, not have cash flow during the first year, especially if you've trained them that they have cash flow. But just let me um, uh, reiterate one other point: is you remember you are competing against other people and other people's deals. Okay, so especially nowadays where social media is so prevalent and there's so many syndicators out there and they're not looking to sell any type of training. They're just looking to get people in their deals. They're giving, providing content and they're bringing investors in and they've got deals that they're, that they're providing on a regular basis. So know that you're in competition. I mean, if you have your own investor list and they're trained, then you can certainly offer something like that. But, um, you know, just know the marketplace that you're playing in. Okay. Uh, Imran asks, uh, Dave, what's your take on the DC metro market? Yeah, I like DC. DC, you know, the fact that DC always has a big change usually every four years because of the politics there. Um, that's big. It's usually the first market to come out of a recession. So uh, that's a plus as well. Actually, you know what? The first market to come out of a recession is actually Minneapolis, Minnesota. Why? I don't know, but it usually is. Um so you might, if you're around that area, but DC, I like, but and here's the thing with DC, you've got Richmond in the South, you've got uh, Baltimore over there, I guess on the East, and they usually lag DC by about a year. So you watch what's happening in DC and then you get ahead, you go into those, one of those other two markets or both of them. And um, you jump in, you get into the right submarket, and then you start playing the submarket game. You know, we call it being ahead of the herd. Oh, there's always, submarkets always rotate the same way in every cycle. So you, through a, a local broker, they'll tell you how the submarkets rotate. So it always usually starts downtown. And then after downtown uh, yields out, you know, then the, then the herd goes to the next submarket and then the next submarket. So the game to play is first, see what's going on in Washington, realize, okay, this is going to happen in Baltimore, um, uh, Richmond in a year from now, and then jump into that, that primary submarket, start buying a bunch when the herd comes, you know, sell to the herd and then, uh, you know, buy into the, the next submarket or the next one after that. That's fantastic. Um, okay. So Nico asks, what about RV parks? RV parks? Yeah. Yeah. They're like mobile home parks, uh, RV parks. Um, RV parks are a little bit different because you can actually drive them away. Um, I have not invested in RV parks. Uh, I've had a lot of uh, clients that have, been, that have taken our apartment information and use it to invest in mobile home parks. But I personally have not invested in either, so I'm really not qualified to answer that question. Yeah, it, it's it's very seasonal. So if you're going to want to do RV parks, you're going to want to get training from somebody who specifically trains people how to buy RV parks, so you know what's what the deal is with those. Um, let's see. We have someone who asks uh, Mag Magziak. Uh, given the high inflation rate, what percentage uh, are you underwriting for expense growth rate in your line items over the next few years? For buy, before buying a property? Uh, that's a really good question. It's usually a three and a two, a 3% increase in income and a 2% increase in expenses. Um, it, it, that is market driven as well. The thing to do is to get a good lending, um, um, a lending broker, like we use Eric Stewart. He's awesome. Yes. Um, and every market has their own expense uh, rules of thumb. 
So depending on what market you're in, Eric will tell you, okay, this is the way you look at that market expense-wise. This is the way Freddie Mac, Fannie Mae are going to look at this market expense-wise. Mm-hmm. That's how you'll dial in those numbers. So that's the best advice I can give you there. And I would uh, also vouch for Eric. He's amazing. Um, what's is it uh, Atlantic Capital or something like that? Yeah, Atlantic, Atlantic, Atlantic Capital. Yeah. yeah, be happy to refer anybody to Eric. That uh, He helped us. We had a property that just like could not be refinanced. He stuck with us for two years. And we finally, it was crazy. We had a property in Ohio at a time that Ohio uh, lenders weren't lending to out-of-state residents. And then we ended up buying a house in Ohio for my stepdaughter to live in. And as soon as we owned a house in Ohio, then all these lenders said, oh, you own property in Ohio, we'll lend to you. So two years later, Eric helped us. Yeah, so you can't get finances in a certain market. Maybe you have to buy a house there. I don't know. That's a word for us. It was crazy. Um, Okay, what's next? Okay, so here's an anonymous attendee asks, what are your thoughts on the California market, specifically the Bay Area, San Jose, Santa Clara, San Francisco, regarding the Trinity formula? Well, again, you know, the Trinity works in, in every phase of the market cycle. It's just the amount of deals that work, you know, that you can get in and, and the Trinity actually works on the deals. are going to be fewer depending on what phase you are. Uh, but those markets, uh, I mean, the California markets are, are are always good. I mean, rent control in the entire state right now is is something that's a little different. But um, if you can, during this reset, usually during the resets, markets like San Francisco and San Jose, the cash flow, they have an open window of cash flowing. You know, San Diego, uh, Los Angeles, which is is those windows open and close very, very short periods. So when you can buy, buy. You, I've got a student, Jose Bellman. He's been killing it in San Francisco for the last uh, five or six years. Um, he'll be on stage actually at Ultimate Partnering. He's going to talk about you know how he how he does it, uh, but that is one of the tightest markets in the country, and he's just getting deal after deal. Um, Andy, uh, what are the emerging markets you're looking at right now? The ones I just mentioned. Uh, if you weren't here, I'll say it again. Uh, we're very interested in Dallas, um, Salt Lake City, Utah, Orlando, Atlanta, Charlotte. Um, did I miss one? I can't remember. Um, but the, the markets that will, will will reset the fastest, you know, they'll have the shortest, um, they'll have the shortest downtime. They'll come out fastest and strongest. Minneapolis and DC were the other two that you answered. Oh, yeah, Minneapolis and DC are probably the first ones that are going to move. <clears throat> hey, Gretchen asks, do you think there's still any deals to be made in Phoenix Metro? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I was just looking at my list because I did have a list here of markets. Phoenix and Tampa are also on that list. The thing with Phoenix is it it has um, it has like eighteen month cycles, so it cycles really really fast, which is good because you know you 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 understand how to play the cycles, the four phases of the cycle, or just the emerging phase, uh, and you can play quite a bit in Phoenix. So Phoenix is always an exciting market to be in. How about Florida Space Coast? Uh, so from Jacksonville down to Cape Canaveral. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a time, uh, I think it was about two years ago, that that was, that was the, the amount of job growth that was being created in that space was highest in any area in the U.S., but it hasn't been, it hasn't come on my radar in the last year, year and a half, so I'm really not sure as to what's going on over there right now. All right. Um, and oh, so we had one more question. Uh, who was the debt broker that we mentioned? That was Eric Stewart of uh, Atlantic Capital. If you need a referral to Eric, you can email me, Kim at syndicationattorneys.com and uh, we can get you that referral. Um, So Dave, thank you. This has been completely amazing as always. Uh, The amount of information that you are willing to share with people is just mind boggling. And uh, I hope everybody got a lot of value out of their podcast today. 
if you want information about RE Mentor, go to rementor.com. If you want information about us, go to syndicationattorneys.com. There we have an entire library of over 60 different articles, a bunch of frequently asked questions, um, all of our previously recorded podcasts, also podcasts that I record for other people where you might learn uh, you know, more of a broad overview of syndication where they're asking me questions. Those are all posted there. Uh, you can get a free copy, a free digital copy of my book. I am coming out with a second edition within the next couple of months. Uh, so, uh, and if any of you don't know, Dave Lindahl was the wrote the foreword for my book. So uh, that, that was an amazing boost for us as well. Um, but uh, at syndicationattorneys.com, if you want, you can schedule an appointment uh, with me or any of our staff. And we're always happy to answer your questions about syndication as well. Um, so thanks so much, Dave. Say one thing, yeah, go ahead. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Years, years from now, you know, when we're old and gray and we're sitting on the front porch, my front porch, and we're reminiscing, I'm going to say, remember when I was your first YouTube guest ever? <laughs> that's amazing all right so uh we're yeah you you can go to our um raise private money legally podcast there are over 60 podcasts uh there already we're happy to uh, have you follow us on our podcast platform and uh it's you know it's been an amazing uh journey for us as well uh to kind of ride along on dave's coattails and uh learn from dave and be able to help our clients uh, become successful, you know, and, and I think we share a lot of the same clients. So uh, that's just been an amazing journey for all of us, I think. But uh, all right, everybody have a really great day. And we'll look forward to seeing you on our next podcast. Thank you for listening to the Raise Private Money Legally podcast with your host, securities attorney, Kim Lisa Taylor. If you liked this episode, please subscribe and leave a review. Syndication Attorneys PLLC is a law firm that provides syndication and fund documents, offers commercial real estate transactional services, and creates professionally designed investor marketing materials for capital raising clients nationwide. Visit syndicationattorneys.com to schedule an appointment and sign up to get a copy of our latest book, How to Raise Capital for Real Estate Legally, the only guide you need to raise private money legally for real estate funds and syndications.